doesn't reveal much, does it? So we're here to uh, fellowship in the Word together, and uh, before we start, it's important that uh, we be aligned, uh, us and God, when we look into His Word, and meaning that we do need to do the necessary alignment on our part, as Rusty very adequately taught on first hour, God never moved, He doesn't waver, but we do, we wander all over the place. And it is necessary for us to be in fellowship with him when we study his word. Otherwise, at best, it's a big waste of time on our part. Now, we don't waste God's time. Time means nothing to him. But it's not effective as, uh, as worship or growing if uh, we approach it in a carnal state. So for that reason, it's necessary to check ourselves out. And we have a promise in, the, in 1 John. 1 John 1, 9, words that we all know, says, uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we can take care of it right there on the spot by prayer to God. So uh, we'll, ha we'll open a prayer now before we start. I'll give a, um, a few seconds for you to Take that action if necessary, privately in your souls between you and God, and then I'll open us in a prayer. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we desire to approach the study of your word with fear and trembling to make sure that we're looking at things the right way, Father, and we trust you. Your word is all sufficient for us. The promises that you've given in the word apply to us. Pray now that uh, the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts during this time of study to make real what is being said, to protect the truth and keep us from falsehoods. to work in our hearts that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and be adequately prepared to do the work that you've given us to do. We ask your blessing on this time of study together. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Rusty, when he talked this morning, and, and uh, by the way, if you weren't here to be able to uh, take in uh, that very encouraging word, I urge you to... Get the recording and, uh, and play it through many times if necessary. Very encouraging. Um, one of the things that Rusty started off with this morning was, uh, was talking about how uh, he might be a little apprehensive to standing up here and uh, waxing forth. Uh, and that's healthy. I think that anybody that stands and teaches the Word, uh, if they don't have some fear in their hearts about possibly going the wrong way, they don't understand the magnitude of what's going on. When, uh, when anyone stands and speaks and thus says the Lord comes out of their mouth, either directly or by inference, there has to be some fear in that, that the truth is being spoken. So we all, uh, anybody that stands here and seeks to proclaim the word, does so with fear and trembling. Uh, even our beloved, well-experienced, polished pastor in his word has that fear as he approaches the teaching. Make sure we're getting it right. So I pray that, and I pray that you will pray that for me, that uh, no untruth ever comes from this big box up here with its marvelous electronic control panel that we'll understand someday. And uh, let's uh, make sure that we do it right. We're doing this for, not just for our edification, we're doing this for the glory of God. And so uh, it's very important we get it right. So what are we doing today? Uh, my topic, well, the method of pre our presentation is going to be vastly different, as you'll see here in about 30 seconds. From, from Rusty, 
uh, taking uh, a measured period of time and going very logically, methodically through that small passage of Scripture in, uh, in Proverbs 3 and bringing out the wonderful truths and applications uh, for that in our lives. Uh, I am doing, it's not, it's not a line-by-line, verse-by-verse uh, exegesis of any part of Genesis 1 through 11. That would take us years. Uh, what it is is a brief, broad brush uh, exposition of what's happening in those 11 chapters of Genesis that sets the history of origins and gets us to the point where we're talking about the children of Israel, the second generation after the Exodus, getting ready to cross the Jordan into the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah, we're a long ways from Deuteronomy, but all this stuff is important to getting us there. Today, we are going to be That's where we are. Uh, Genesis 5 through 7, so you can say, wow, that's really ambitious. 5, 6, 7, so three chapters of Genesis, and we've got uh, 50 minutes. And uh, we, will, we will zip through that, cover what I believe are the key points. Uh, there's a lot of detail in there that we will not capture because time limits, uh, and, uh, and so we'll do, the, we'll do this. But getting the basic idea of cross. If afterwards uh, you have a desire to want to get into this uh, verse by verse and all the details, um, that can be arranged and uh, we could have a years-long study uh, in the book of Genesis. So let's see, what do we have here? So, chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day when God created man he made him in the likeness of God so this just captures the last time we studied which covers all of Genesis 2 through 4 this is the book of generations of Adam and that little word in there I'll give you a little bit of a of Hebrew uh, the word is let's see if I can That word right there, Toledot. This is the Toledot of Adam in the day God created, and on and on and on. Uh, Toledot is, it means generations or descendants or successors, and it's a theme throughout the book of Genesis. There are 10 or so of these Toledots in here. This is the second one. The first was, we looked at that back in Genesis 2-3. He created them male and female. He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. Now, no offense here meant to women's livers. That's not singling out the, uh, the male sex in this. Man is the overall term that talks about those creatures creatures. Humans created in God's image. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image and named him Seth. You have Yalad, which is he caused to bring forth a son. Uh, you note a son is that... Where did I go? There, son. In your, if you're using a New American Standard, that's going to be uh, in italics in your uh, in your Bible, indicating that that's not. There's no word in this in this verse for son. It's so he he brings forth in his own likeness and image, and the implication is that it's a son. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And again, we have, a, we have a, a, uh, an italics in there, so the word other is not in there uh, in the original. It just says he had sons and daughters. And since he weren't talking about Seth, Seth's already been talked about. It's logical to put in other. 
sons and daughters. And it continues. So all the days, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So this sequence, X lived so many years and became the father of Y. Then the days of X, after he became the father of Y, were W, years, and he had other sons and daughters, so that all the days that X lived were ZZZ years, and he died. This sequence is standard, you'll see as we go through here, uh, until we get to Enoch, and then later on when uh, we turn to Lamech and uh, the birth of Noah. So watch it as we go through here. We'll go pretty fast now as we're seeing these things. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh and he had other sons and daughters. So that all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Enosh, his son, lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan and he had other sons and daughters. And then what's going to happen? So all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. See a pattern here? Kenan lived 70 years, became the father of Mahalal. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalel, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. He lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalel were 895 years and he died. Everybody dies. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then he lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch and he had other sons and daughters. So that all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. That's a little different. Then Enoch walked with God for 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. Pretty similar. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And then what? Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Enoch did not die physically, but God took him to heaven after he had lived for 365 years. God took him directly. The emphasis shows Enoch was obviously then particularly faithful in his walk with God and thus was rewarded by not having to suffer and experience a long life ending in physical death as everybody else in this lineage has. Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Back to the sequence. He lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. This is the longest living man on record in the scripture. Now his son Lamech, what happens here? Lamech lived 182 years and he became the father of a son. Little shift. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Looking for some hope and some change in the punishment that's gone on since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and had to toil 
in the uh, thistles and thorns of the earth. So big pivot here. Well, but now we got the same. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 787 years, and he died. So what do we got here? We have the, we have the, the Toledot of Adam, all the generations. This is the, um, the so-called, and I don't use that term pejoratively, uh, line of Seth, the godly line of Seth. There's another line which we looked at, which we looked at previously in Genesis four, and that was the line of Cain, who killed his brother Abel, uh, and went off and lived in the land of Nod, and that's the last we hear of him. So all the days of Lamech were 787 years, and he died. 777 years, and he died. So uh, I really apologize. This is a terrible graphic. It doesn't look too bad, but it's not great. So um, I guarantee there is no there is no copyright trademark on this. It is free use. Uh, but the gentleman that put it all together uh, put it together in a PDF, and the PDF you can print it out on an eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper. Uh, and how do you capture that into a slide? Well, uh, my technology was such that I approach everything with a hammer, and uh, so I. I laid this, I, I couldn't figure out how to do it, but I tried to save it as something that I could import into a slide. I couldn't get it done. I know there's probably a way to do it, but I couldn't figure it out. So what I did, I laid this thing on the table and took my, uh, my uh, iPhone 11 Pro and took a picture of it. And you can see from this thing that I wasn't exactly holding my phone straight over this thing, so it's a little, it looks like it's being sucked into a black hole over here. And uh, if those things existed. And uh, so it's a little distorted. I apologize for the distortion, but that's all we'll say about that. Everything that's on here is, is the information that we just finished talking about. You can see the, the uh, we, we start, we'll call this the, uh, this is not BC, not AD, BCE, BCE, CME. It is, I would call it, uh, uh, CE or ACE after the Chris after the creation event so Adam year 0 was created not born created and he lived for 930 years and you can see then his line Seth comes in at 130 years lives thusly and on down through so you can see some interesting things what do you one of the things you pick out of this Adam lived for 930 years, so Adam was still alive when every one of these people in this lineage was born, with the exception of Methuselah, and he died a couple hundred years before Methuselah was born. Uh, other interesting things, we saw the very short uh, duration of Enoch right here. Uh, he walked with God, and then God took him. We, no, we noted that Methuselah was the longest-lived guy at 969 years. We also notice, if we look at this, that his son Lamech, in this line, uh, expired before Methuselah did, about six years before Methuselah did. And if we look here, the Methuselah, if he add up the numbers here, uh, 687 plus 969 comes up with 1656. And uh, that's interesting number because we look down here. This is this is Noah's timeline, born in 1056 A.C.E. and lived for 950 years and died in 2006 A.C.E. Uh, when did the flood happen? The flood happened when Noah was. We'll, we'll get to this in a in a minute or so. But the flood happened when Noah was 600 years old. So 656 plus 600 is 1656. And when did we say Methuselah died? 1656. So now you know that the learned, particularly the more the critical, the so-called critical scholars will pick this apart and, and say, well, uh, Methuselah was killed in the flood uh, or 
there are some uh, that put the dates together differently, and they have all sorts of hebahaba going on with, with, uh, with several of these characters living past the flood. I don't know how they got there, because we're going to see that in a minute, that the flood is pretty thorough. Everybody that wasn't on that ark, that's an air breather, expired. So there's no way that you did a time warp and jumped past there and wound up in the period uh, post-flood. So all of this generation, this genealogy from Adam to Noah, with the exception of Noah, who with his family was saved from the flood by through the ark. They all expired, but I think they all expired. Methuselah may have died in, in uh, 1656, but I, sometime in that year prior to the flood coming on the earth, so that he was not destroyed by the flood, I don't think. And he certainly didn't live past the flood. So, uh, interesting, but that's all the time we have to talk about that. So I, I had a note here. These dates work pretty well, going from uh, zero being the year of, um, of creation up through. We, we know this information. Why do we know this information? Because it's in Scripture. That's it. End of discussion. It's in Scripture, and so uh, it, is, it is valid. We, tra- we take that on face value. These are the years, the times, when, when these... Uh, men lived and so how does this work out works out pretty well with uh, uh, other dates we have for which have creation events occurring approximately 4200 BC Uh, if we worked out this metric here because we know when uh, Noah died uh, we can figure out back to when creation would have to be and we do all the numbers here uh, it would put creation at 4206 uh, BCE. So 4206 BCE pretty well corresponds with uh, 0 ACE. All right, enough of that. So all the godly line of Seth die uh, before, the, uh, before the, uh, the flood. All right. Noah was 500 years old, 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his three sons. And now we shift. Now it came about, chapter 6, verse 1, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they choose. The term sons of God, uh, Hebrew, B'nai Elohim, the term as it appears here in the Hebrew is only referring to angelic beings in the Old Testament. There is never an instance in the Old Testament where that terminology, B'nai Elohim, is used to refer to anything other than angelic beings. Period. Now, opposing views say that these sons of God here are from the godly line of Seth and that they somehow, well, it's possible they were unequally yoked with bad women. That's one viewpoint. Uh, They were the good guys in the lines of Seth, but they picked the wrong lady. Uh, Another viewpoint is that they were uh, ungodly, dynastic, demon-possessed men who married women. That's a possibility. Uh, but I lean towards the first one because that's the one that Scripture backs and it has support of other Scripture. It's talked about in uh, 2 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, and in Jude 6 and 7, among other, in the New Testament, that these Benaha Elohim were angelic beings and uh, they did what they did. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. This is not establishing the lifetime length of people from this point on. What this is, is in reference to how long God's going to give mankind 
to get squared away right now and respond to Noah 120 years from this point until Kadush, the flood starts and uh, all air breathers are being wiped out except for those on the ark. So before he destroys the world by flood, we've got a 120 year grace period and uh, that's that. So it's not in reference, to, I do not believe, it's not in reference to the post-flood age men might attain to. So a little aside here. So during this period of time, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, period. Those were the mighty, wind, mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So we've got to pick this verse apart just a little bit. It says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. So the Nephilim are already here. And now we have the sons of God seeing that the daughters of men were desirable, and so they're snatching them up and taking them for wives. And the daughters are bearing sons, children to them. That's a kind of like a parenthetical in the, in the middle here. And those Nephilim, then, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. They were mighty men of old, men of renown. This is a human terms. They're not, the Nephilim were not angelic beings. We see this Nephilim term one other place in the Old Testament, and that's in Numbers 1333, uh, talking about the uh, Exodus generation spying out the land and being afraid because the people in there were large in stature and big in size, and it scared them. And they said, We can't do this. And they called them Nephilim. Uh, so for the issue of the sons of God to be Nephilim would imply what? They survived the flood. Did anybody survive the flood that wasn't on the ark? No. So, into that discussion, the Nephilim are not angelic beings. Uh, in the, the Numbers passage, it said they are the sons of Anak uh, who were part of the Nephilim, and it says we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, so we were in... And so we were in their sight. Giant beings, large in stature. Who do we know like that? Goliath. He wasn't an angelic being. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The world, as the modern phrase says, was going to H dot 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 in a handbasket in those days, much like it appears to be doing today. And so we're setting up the we're setting up we're not setting up the flood here because that's been promised it will never happen again, but we might be setting up some awful retribution by our Lord because of what we're doing. Now, if you think about some of the stuff that's going on where we're encouraging children to mutilate their bodies by taking parts out that God put in there and trying so they can be something else that they're not, that they were not created to be, and doing that without their parents having any knowledge of it. That ranks right up there with what was going on in, uh, in Genesis 6 here. The Lord was sorry that he created man on earth and he was grieved in his heart. So what's he going to do? The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. So everything that breathes air, that has the breath of lives in them, is going to be destroyed. The fish are going, to are going to survive. Uh, now you can ask me, but I don't know about the whales, about the dolphins. There are some aquatic creatures that are air breathers, uh, and I don't know their situation in here. If I literally take this, if they breathe the air, then that says they were no more. Uh, but I don't see evidence of any whales or dolphins on the ark. 
Uh, so it's a quandary for me, and I accept it as that. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So, uh, and this, uh, with this is the end of the Toledot of Noah. And we have a little chiasm here in verses uh, 5 through 8 of chapter 6. We start off in 6.5. The Lord looks at mankind. The Lord regrets what he has done. And he says, I shall wipe out man. And then coming back, because I regret. And then the Lord sees Noah. And we have a path to salvation. And now we get in a new Toledot. These are the records of the generations of Noah. And you notice there that records, again, is uh, records is in italics, so that's not there, but it makes the English smooth if we say that that way. It literally reads, these are the generations of Noah. And you can see, there's our Toledot. There's these, Toledot of Noah. Noah was a man of God. All right. He was a righteous man, blameless in his ways. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. All the earth was filled with violence. Recall what was going on in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. God said, Noah, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. And compare that with chapter 6, verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I made them. So he tells Noah, gives him some instructions now. All right. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And so the long construction period starts. I don't know how long it took. There's one commentator that said it was done in 40 days. Um, I have to cry baloney on that one. Because uh, having been involved in the construction of a, of a, of a few submarines, and uh, this is bigger than some and smaller than others, but it's a big vessel. Uh, probably total displacement loaded about 14,000 tons. Uh, it's big. And so he's given these instructions. Or this is what we're told. We don't know all the details, and we can't know it because God didn't tell us. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover it on the inside and out with pitch. And uh, my first question would be, what's an ark? Uh, we could diverse. No, no, I won't go there. No rabbit trail on that one. So uh, gopher wood. Uh, the Hebrew is gopher, so this is just a transliteration. Uh, the... Uh, uh, BDAG, the go-to lexicon for uh, this stuff, says it is a, and that's not BDAG, that's the Halot, that's the Hebrew Aramaic, BDAG is Greek. Uh, it said it's an unknown species of wood used for building the ark. Many commentators say it is Caesar, Caesar, cedar, or some other conifer suitable for shipbuilding. The term is hapaxagamana, it's the only time it appears in scripture and here and the pitch. Now, we know that pitch would be for watertight integrity. You want this thing to float. 
This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 350 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Let's do some comparison, some calculations. So the length, uh, 300 cubits. Now we use a standard cubit. A cubit is approximately this distance, my elbow, the tip of my fingers. And it depends on you, a big man, a small man, or whatever, but it varies. But the standard cubit is about 18 inches. So we use 18 inches. You multiply 300 by 18, divide that by 12 to come up with feet, you get 450 feet. That's the length. The width, 50 by 18 by 12, 76 and a half feet. The breadth. Height, 30 by 18 divided by 12, 45 feet. Keel to the top. Very well proportioned. Uh, if you were to compare a, a large tanker, an aircraft carrier, uh, the, the dimensions are similar, length to breadth to height, as this. Very stable uh, in the water. Much different from, for example, the, the uh, you know, uh, I've never studied them, but there are al almost every area of the world has a, a flood cosmology. They have something in their past where they have a knowledge of something, a global flood happening, and they talk about how certain people were saved from that flood, how they were saved, and all that stuff. And of course, they're involving all sorts of, of uh, uh, non-real imitation gods in the process and giving various reasons for the flood and all that stuff, but it, it, they're all over the place. One of them in the Gilgamesh epic, it was a cube. So same dimensions on all three sides. So those of you that know anything about ships and floating stuff and, and stability and all that stuff, if you take a square block of water, a block of that's good, a block of water, block of wood, and put it in the water, and you just take your finger and go boop like that, it'll go roll, 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 roll. Anyway, you cannot make that stable. Uh, but anyway, they have all kinds of stuff like that. So, back to the ark. It had three decks and over 100,000 square feet of deck space. There are over 1 million cubic feet of space in it. It has the volume capacity of approximately 860 railroad boxcars, a floating capacity, I mentioned before, a displacement of almost 14,000 tons, and I took that information from Tom, Goss, Tom Constable and his expository notes on the Bible. I have not researched and validated any of that, although I would say that I have I've heard, if not those, then similar numbers in the past about relating the size of the ark as is described in Scripture to these elements to counter some, for example, that would say, there's no way that you could fit every kind of animal in any kind of ship that you could build. Well, it turns out it's not so hard after all. You take all the animals, biggest to littlest, and the average is about the size of a, a sheep or a goat. And you, there's plenty of room to fit all of them in there. You're gonna, yeah, the big guy is going to have to take a lot of space. But you got the little bitty guys that don't take up much space at all. So it works. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. And you shall make it with second, lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. You shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So that's eight people. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. So they shall be male and female. Now how's he going to keep all that animal and bird life alive on the ark? 
of the birds after their kind and after the animals after their kind, every, of every living thing on the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. So he didn't have to go out scour uh, scrounging in the bushes and all that stuff to find these animals. God is going to cause them to come to the ark. As for you, take yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and for them. So Noah has got to to provision the ark with sufficient food for himself, his family, and all of the animals. Here's something to ponder. How did he know how much food to bring onto the ark? How did he know how long he would need to be on the ark? We're not told. We have to trust that he had that information. Thus Noah did. God told him to do it and Noah did it. It's, it's simple as that. According to all that God commanded him, so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, we're in chapter 7, verse 1. Now's the time. Time to get on the boat. And now it's clear that only Noah and his family are going to survive because nobody else, there's no discussion about anybody else coming up to Noah and say, hey Noah, what are you doing? Tell me about this. What's going to happen? Oh, really? Can I get in on this? Didn't happen. The Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. This 120 years that God gave man to get squared away. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and its female, and of the animals that are not clean too, a male and his female. So now we have a, a dividing up here of the clean and the unclean. You bring the clean in by sevens. Um, what's the logic, of course, of having more clean than unclean? Well, it's simple. The clean are going to be used to make sacrifices to God. And if you only had two and you sacrificed them, you can see the problem, right? Then you're not going to be able to... Uh, uh, to continue with that, with that kind. So smart, our God, tell him you bring in an extra supply of the clean ones. So you know. Uh, what the difference between clean and unclean is, at this point in time, if this is all we knew, we had never read another, part, another word of Scripture, we would not know. We have some inklings because we know that certain sacrifices were acceptable and certain were not. In the case of Cain and Abel, I think a lot of that had to do with attitude as opposed to exactly what they were, where they were sa sacrificing. But needless to say, they had a knowledge. So here's the thing that uh, Pastor Dave told me when I, when I was talking to him about this. Well, how did they know this stuff? And uh, what we have in Scripture is not exhaustive. I don't know how we would be able to contain the book if it were tried to be exhaustive, but it's not exhaustive. It's what God determined that we need to know about this situation at this point in time. It is sufficient for us, but it's not exhaustive. Somehow they knew because they make sacrifices. Uh, we read later on, uh, this is post-flood, of course, about uh, Job. Job made sacrifices for his family, for the kids, when they were party-harding, and, uh, and he wanted to make sure that they, uh, that they didn't get in trouble. Uh, so sacrifices have been around long before the specifics of the Mosaic Law were given, where it's laid out, you do this, you do this, you do this, and it specifies, God specifies, these are the clean animals, and these are the unclean animals, but they knew. So, you bring seven of the clean and two of the unclean to perpetuate the kind. Also the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, you got seven days for loadout and then we're going to deploy. I will reign on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. I will blot out from the face of the earth every living thing that I have made. That's it. Pretty final. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. 
Now, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. So here's our time stamp for the start of the flood. By genealogy, we know, so we discussed previously when we looked at that uh, uh, slide on the, uh, on the genealogy there that the flood happened 1656 A.C.E. Then Noah and his sons and wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, bringing them aboard. There went into the ark by twos, a male and a female, as God had commanded. And we also have the previous discussion about the sevens of the cleans. Noah didn't have to go out and get these creatures. God brought them to him. All he had to do was show them to their bunk once they got on board. It came about after seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. Here we go. Started to rain. We have an exact time for that. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, so water's coming from under, and the floodgates of the sky open, water's coming down, and it is going to get deep. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kinds, all sorts of birds. So he's got all of this on the ark with him now. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it, it being the door behind him. Shut it up. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. Water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. So 15 cubits above the top of the highest mountain, 15, that's about 22 feet. Plenty, plenty of water there so that the draft of the ark would clear and they wouldn't run aground on anything until God was ready for them to. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. So it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, water coming down from the sky. The fountains of the deep were opened, and the water was gushing up 40 days and 40 nights. It stopped raining the water prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. You're keeping track of time here. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. And uh, if we were to go ahead, uh, we would see in, uh, in chapter 8 that... Uh, in the 601st year, on the second month, 
in the 27th day, boom, dry land. Uh, so uh, the flood lasted then uh, about 371 days from the time it started to rain until the ark ran aground uh, in the mountains of Ararat, not Mount Ararat. So my proposal is that uh, because I just was time limited, we've been scurrying to get through what we've got through, and we've got the, we've got the last half of the flood, the recovery from the flood to talk about. So the next time we're together, we'll just quickly review this stuff, maybe five minutes, what we've done today, and then we'll dive in to uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9, uh, which will cover the uh, aftermath of the flood, the promise that God makes uh, to never do that again, and the promise that we have yet today of the rainbow uh, that is validation that that promise exists. And then uh, some other things very important about the institution of capital punishment uh, being authorized after the flood for uh, people to then consume animal flesh prior to the flood and on the ark. They, they were eating, they were vegetarians. Uh, they were all vegetarians. And uh, after uh, they were allowed to eat the uh, flesh of the animals, but they were warned not to eat the blood with the animals because the animal's life is in its blood. And uh, that was bad juju for them to do that. Uh, we'll look at all these things the next time. And uh, I trust this is a meaningful thing, to, a meaningful way to look at this. Uh, I would love to have a detailed study of this because there is just so much neat stuff in the language of uh, all of the all of Scripture, uh, in particular this primeval section that is under so much attack today. Uh, you know, the, the three views of creation. Uh, well, there's three views for Christians. I think there's probably only one view for unbelievers. Uh, but uh, the, the, young earth, the young earth creation, uh, I'm a young earth creationist. I wasn't always. Uh, there was some Kool-Aid that I consumed way back in the day when I was first a believer that said there were all sorts of things going on, like a gap between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. And this is where everything, all the dinosaurs and all this other stuff were ram-crammed and jammed in there. Whew! Uh, doesn't work that way. And that's not what the Scripture says, and it doesn't leave that open to discussion. So uh, an inductive study of the Scriptures leads me to a young earth creation viewpoint. Uh, there are a couple of others where uh, believers attempt to accommodate uh, and... Uh, one of them is an old earth creation where uh, you accommodate the, uh, uh, the uh, uniformitarians and all the stuff about time and chance making it all happen. And then there's theistic evolution, which is way off the end of the chart and inconsistent with anything that God has to say. So I'm a young earth creationist. I think most of us here are. That's the part that makes sense. And we'll continue on that. And it's important that why are we doing this right now? This is... This is the primeval history that the children of Israel are getting on the plains of Moab from uh, Moses, the author of this work, uh, before they, uh, they go into the land. So um, that's all I have today. Uh, in the closing moments, would like to... Uh, make an offer. I can't do it as eloquently as Rusty did first hour. Maybe I could get him back up here and he would repeat what he said first hour, but I won't, I won't ask him to do that. Um, we all have a decision to make. Uh, well, let me set the tone for that. We're all going to live forever. Forever means for all eternity. Uh, not in this, not in this house, uh, in this, in this body, but we're all going to live forever. And the question is, Okay, where are we going to live forever? And it's binary. There's a binary choice. It's either going to be with God or eternally separated from God. And you say, well, I don't like God, so why would that be so bad? 
it would be the most awful thing that uh, could ever happen to anybody. And for any of us that are wondering about the salvation status of a person and thinks realistically about what the alternative is if they never, A, get a chance to hear the gospel, and that won't happen. They'll get a chance to hear it, but they never make a decision for Christ. What happens? And it's awful. Uh, and to think about someone that I have an opportunity to witness to uh, that if I don't, well, that person passes without trusting Jesus. How do you get past that as a person who has an opportunity to share the gospel and didn't do it? Uh, that would be something that would be hard to reconcile oneself to. So we don't want to go there. So what's the, what's the answer? Uh, we know. I think... I. Look at all the faces here. I know most of you. I don't know everybody. I can't read your minds. I have no idea, in some cases, uh, whether you're saved or not saved. Uh, God knows for sure, and maybe you do. Uh, but I do have the answer. Uh, it's in the words of Scripture. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. The scripture also says, when the Philippian jailer asked, what, is a man must, what must a man do to be saved? The simple words of Paul there, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. That doesn't mean your believing carries over to your household, but if your household believes, they will all be saved. So what do you believe about Jesus? You believe the gospel. And we read that in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died and was buried according to the scriptures. And on the third day he arose from the dead according to the scriptures. Evangelists came here once and talked about the simple ten words of the gospel and I've never forgotten that. Ten words. Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. Anybody can remember that. Anybody can repeat that. If you believe that, you have eternal life. And if you don't, we pray for you that you will believe. We will tell you over and over again, God loves you. Jesus loves you. That's what we tell the kids in the Good News Clubs. Little children with smiling faces that are wonderful to work with. And when you tell a little child, Jesus loves you, they're likely to believe, and that's a wonderful thing. Now, we get older, it's a little harder because we're set in our ways and we become curmudgeons and we don't like anything or anybody uh, and we distrust everything and so it's a little more of a challenge. But that's not our challenge. We communicate the truth of the Word. It's God's job to convince them. Our part in that is communication and prayer. We put these people before the throne of grace. God, draw them, draw, draw them to you. Convict them of their need for a Savior so that they will make that decision because they have that decision to make. So it's there. The gift of life. The free truth of the grace gospel. You don't do anything. You don't deserve it. But God does it anyway because Jesus died for our sins and paid the penalty. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for this time together. We pray that your spirit will continue to work in the lives of all. Those that know you and aren't following. Those that don't know you and need to follow. Those that do know you and are following and want to know more. For your provision in the case of each one. For the unbeliever to convict him or her of their need for a savior and to provide a willing witness ready to give them the words of truth, the words of life. For those that know and have walked away, draw them back to you so that they can be useful again in the ministry of the gospel. And for all of us, help us as we walk to walk worthy of our calling 
as you say in Ephesians 4.1. For we love you and we want to know you, which we know is eternal life. Father, thank you for this time we've had together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.